Well, good evening. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 76. As I told you last time, this is part two of Zechariah's Song of Praise for you guys in the back room. Um, I told you last time, this is one of my favorite portions of scripture, and I, I just love this text. I love looking at it always, but especially at this time of the year as we're quickly approaching Christmas. Let me read the text there, Luke 1, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways Uh, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Last time we were together, we began to work our way through this uh, portion of text and we saw that it's really a a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called Zechariah's Song of Salvation. Sometimes it's known as Zechariah's Benedictus, uh, Benedictus, which is just uh, blessings. Uh, It's a thrilling portion of Scripture, an exciting portion of Scripture that just loaded uh, with profound theological truth. Luke, the physician, is turned um, theologian, historical author, and he, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, directs our attention to this praise of Zechariah. You'll remember the scene, right? Zechariah is an old man. He's a priest. He's a true believer. He's not part of apostate Judaism. At Christ's time, he's not part of the Pharisee party. He's not a legalist. Uh, he's not somebody pursuing self-righteousness. He's the real deal. Uh, he, he's a genuine believer. He's married to Elizabeth, and two of them have never been able to have children. They are in their old age, probably in their 70s, maybe even in their 80s, and God will allow with them a miracle conception. Uh, Elizabeth, in her old age, she's going to become pregnant. She's going to bear that child, uh, take that child to full term, and give birth to that son. And the child here... It's at the time of the story, he's eight days old. He's going to grow up and be none other than John the Baptist, uh, the prophet who's the forerunner of the Messiah, uh, whom God will send into the world to announce the Messiah's arrival, to prepare men's hearts for the coming of the Savior. Now, again, remember that God's been silent for nearly 400 years. There hasn't been a prophet in Israel for about that time, and there hasn't been a miracle for about 500 years. So Zacharias is performing his uh, duties there in the temple at the beginning of uh, chapter 1 of the book of Luke. Uh, he's confronted by an angel. He's full of fear when he sees the angel, or the angel stands in his presence. And then the angel tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. And as you know the story, Zechariah has a little bit of difficulty uh, believing that because he uh, doesn't, and because he doesn't believe the messenger of God, he's going to find himself uh, dumb, not able to speak, perhaps deaf, not able to hear also until the birth of his son. So Elizabeth conceives exactly as Gabriel, the angel, said she would. Six months into her uh, pregnancy, and the angel Gabriel again arrives, but this time to a different lady, arrives to Mary, who is a virgin, but who, under the power of the Holy Spirit, has a child. Luke 1, verse 31 says, You have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Joseph, Mary's husband, also is informed of the supernatural birth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin will be a child, and <clears throat> shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
So Zacharias is aware of all this. He's aware of the fact that his miraculously born son is the forerunner of the Messiah. And that with him all the hopes and dreams and desires of the nation of Israel and the coming of the Messiah are about to be realized. Now again, he already knows that the Messiah is being formed in Mary's womb because Mary has been staying with him and his wife Elizabeth for about the last three months. And certainly she must have told them, told him of these events. Now Zacharias is overflowing with joy. He's overflowing with praise to God because he realizes that God is at work. He realizes that God is at work and God is beginning to bring forth the fulfillment of the promises that he has made both to Abraham and to David and for the salvation of God's people. So again, there's a lot here. And we're going to move uh, rather rapidly. I'm going to cram a bunch into the text or into our time together like we did last time, but there's a lot more we could consider. But let me just give you a very quick overview. So go back up to verse 67. Verse 67. And as his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, again, Zacharias is, again, the real deal. He's an Old Testament scholar, so he is aware of what is going on here in the text or what's going on in in the events that he's a part of. He he understands he's part of the most uh, monumental event in the redemptive history. He understands that the coming of the forerunner, John the Baptist, who is his miraculously born son, is linked with the coming of the Messiah. Again, the, the Messiah is now even being formed in Mary's womb. So he knows that God at this moment in history is interfering in the affairs of man. And God is inaugurating or beginning to bring about at least the potential fulfillment of his promises and his blessings found both in the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant. Promises that were made to the nation of Israel first, but with overflow of blessings to the Gentiles or to the world who would uh, come to the Savior by faith. So Zacharias begins to praise God. Again, verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, why, why is that? Why does he make that statement? Here it is. For, here's the reason, because he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Zechariah is saying, look, with the arrival of my son, redemption that has long been awaited for is now secured. It hasn't been ratified yet. I mean, the Messiah, the, the forerunner of the Messiah is only eight days old. Again, John the Baptist, this man's son. And the Messiah, the, the Lord Jesus, hasn't even yet been born But Zacharias is so confident in the word of God that God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. He's going to fulfill all of his promises. He speaks in the present tense as if the uh, redemption has already taken place. Because he knows that the birth of his son, John, signals the fact that God is about to visit his people. And God's about to visit his people and bring the provision that makes salvation possible. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, the word redemption means uh, to loose that which is bound or freed from, to be freed from prison or freeing from prison. It uh, talks about uh, redemption or deliverance by way of a price. And the price for redemption is going to be the shed blood of Christ. So again, even before the Redeemer is born, even before the Redeemer is crucified, Zacharias has such confidence in the word of God, he speaks with this, again, still future event as though it's already happened, Right? He has accomplished redemption. He believes so strongly in the word of God. And again, I think that's important for us to get a grasp on that that one point there, at least, that God keeps his promises. Everything God says he's going to do, he's going to do. Everything that God says he's going to do, he's going to bring to pass. He can count on it. 
And that gives us confidence. That gives us hope that we need stability in, in a world that's very unstable. So as Zacharias begins to praise God, he knows that God's eternal rescue operation, if you will, has come into time. And even though the nation of Israel has been rebellious and disobedient as a nation for hundreds, if not thousands of years, he knows that God keeps his promises. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Verse 69, and he, God, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, in order to understand the flow of redemptive history properly, we need to understand that God has made uh, covenants in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, promises, pledges, that will literally be fulfilled because, again, God keeps his word. Remember, I told you last time there are six specific Old Testament covenants named as such in the Bible. Three of them, the Noahic, the Mosaic, and the Priestly covenants, have no salvific elements in them, meaning that salvation is not inherent with them. But there are salvific promises in the Davidic, the Abrahamic, and the New Covenant. They all have components connected to salvation. But listen, the Davidic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant can't come to pass until there's salvation. And the New Covenant is the covenant of salvation, which affects all the rest. So again, you can't receive the benefits of the Abrahamic nor the Davidic Covenant until you've received salvation. And that's tremendously important to understand, and Zechariah understands it. That's why he's singing the song of redemption. That's why he's praising God. He gets it. He sees the whole picture. Again, he's an Old Testament scholar. He understands this most monumental event that he is a part of. He realizes that he is standing right on the preface, as it was, right the ledge, you know, the edge, that all of these three covenants, these great three Old Testament covenants, are about to be ratified about to be fulfilled now again the first covenant that Zechariah has in mind here that he understands is being fulfilled at least in potential is the davidic covenant that's the covenant that god had made with david back in second samuel 7 where god promised to david that he'll have a greater son who'll have an everlasting kingdom second samuel 7 verse 12 when your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers God says, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will, I will, I will. This is what God's doing. And again, you see those very same promises made in uh, Psalm uh, 89. You see it in Isaiah 9-7. God promises that he's going to uh, provide a king for David after his line who will be great. And when that king comes, his people, David's people, God's people, are going to have rest from their enemies. One is going to come out of David's line who's going to rule over the people, uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, and the world from Jerusalem. That's going to be during the time of the millennial kingdom in earthly Jerusalem. And then he'll reign forever as the eternal king in the eternal state. And again, that person is the Messiah, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So this covenant or this promise that God made with uh, David, again, is a unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable, everlasting covenant. Again, verse 69. And he, or God, raised up. This is what God's going to do. This is what God has done. He's raised up, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, again, I told you that phraseology of the horn of salvation in the house of David <clears throat> just speaks to the fact of the power of the coming Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the Messiah. Again, promised long ago in the Old Testament. The righteous branch of David, one who's going to come from David's house and from his lineage. 
verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. <clears throat> Excuse me, and again, way back, God promised he'd send a deliverer, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that word old there is the word aeon. It means forever, unbroken, eternity. It's a promise that God has made before the foundation of the world. Again, literally from eternity. He spoke from the mouth of the holy prophets from eternity. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. So with the arrival of the the king imminent, therefore Zacharias believes that the kingdom and its arrival is also imminent. The promised king of David. The one who would establish his kingdom and his royal throne in Jerusalem and bring Israel freedom from all of its enemies. Something they had not experienced for a very long time. Because the nation of Israel had always been oppressed. Oppressed under Babylonian rules. Oppressed, uh, 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 oppressed under the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, oppressed under the, the Greeks and now under Rome. They're always besieged. The nation of Israel is always besieged by their enemies who hated them. But now with the promise of the Davidic kingdom about to be realized, they're going to be free from all that. They're going to be a sovereign nation with a sovereign king. One who'd be a ruler over the kingdoms, uh, all of the kingdoms that ever existed, not just over Israel, but over the entire world, that great of a king. And this king, read Psalm 2, this king's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. A never-ending kingdom in time that was going to go into the eternal state, that's how great of a king he is. And again, that's what God promised in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, and, and there's about 40 other Old Testament passages they refer to the Davidic promise of the Messiah who come and rule over Israel. And, and that rule would be extended across the world. And, and the Jews had been waiting for this. They'd been long awaiting the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But again, Zacharias not foreseeing the unthinkable would happen, that Israel would actually reject and execute her king. Therefore postponing all the kingdom promises. And I think you can get a good insight of that uh, situation by reading Psalm 89, uh, you read the first 37 verses, it deals with a, uh, it deals in detail with the defined nature and the promise of the king and the kingdom that's going to come. And then as you go to the end of the psalm, it kind of turns, takes a downward turn, it turns almost into a dirge uh, because the promises are not realized. And here's the key word, yet. They're not realized yet. Postponed for a future time, even beyond our day, because of Israel's rejection of her king. But, listen, they will come to pass because God makes promises. And when God makes promises, God will fulfill those promises. I've told you this before numerous times, that Israel's disobedience will not and cannot nullify the promises of God. One day the king will return. He will establish an earthly kingdom, just as God promised David. And in that day, a remnant of Israel will come to repentance and faith in the Savior. Zechariah 12.10, right? They'll look upon me whom they've pierced and mourned. Matthew 23, Zechariah 14.4. God's not going to forget his covenant with David. Now, again, in the context of the story, Zechariah thinks it's all going to happen immediately. The king is right here, right? He's shortly to arrive. Therefore, the establishment of his kingdom. Again, not seeing the rejection of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, saints always believed God's word. Therefore, they always believed that when the Messiah came, he would sit on a literal throne. He would rule over literal kingdom. 
Uh, Israel would be the center of the kingdom and Jerusalem the center city. And, and nations would come before this king and, and his rule, the, the king's rule, would extend across the entire world. A world where there'd be peace and righteousness. And by the way, you see that even in the New Testament. When you go to the New Testament, they believe that. And I think it's entirely significant. Acts chapter 1, there's a post-resurrection account. Acts 1, verse 1. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after by the Holy Spirit given order I had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3 of chapter 1. To these he presented himself alive, and after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a forty period of 40 days and speaking to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. we got some good Bible studies in this church. Probably not as good as that one, right? 40 days with the Messiah, 40 days with the Savior. 40 days with Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God. If Jesus did not believe in a literal physical kingdom, this might be a good time to tell them that. If his apostles didn't believe in a literal earthly kingdom, then they would never have asked the question they ask in verse 6 of Acts 1. And so when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Post-resurrection, right? And again, he never said it's not going to happen. He just told them, verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by your own authority. It's not up to you to know the timing. It's God's issue. The Davidic covenant. He sees it literally being fulfilled right in front of him, or at least in potential. Now the next covenant that Zacharias is going to speak to in his song of praise is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 72, to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. We just kind of started into this last time. Zacharias is praying God, praising God because he realizes that the Savior is coming, that God is fulfilling his promises, and he's praising and rejoicing God because, listen, mercy is on its way. To show mercy towards our fathers. Again, stop and remember the fact that before God called Abraham, he was Abram, right? He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan idolater. He was a moon worshiper. He was a man who was just doing his own thing, living his own life, not looking for God, but God in his kindness came looking for him. Why? Because that's the nature of God. God is merciful. God has a merciful, electing nature. That's his character. And that's primarily the, 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 the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. It is preeminently a covenant of mercy. Because God is gracious, God is compassionate to undeserving people. So there's a stream of mercy, if you will, that starts with Abraham and flows all the way down. All the way through the centuries to provide forgiveness and redemption and eternal blessing to all who have faith in God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Abraham Believe God and God reckoned to him as righteousness. That's how people are saved, by believing what God says is to be true. Now, in contrast with the Davidic covenant, which is a universal in scope, the Abrahamic covenant is, is national. It, it promises blessings to Israel first and foremost. So the covenant that God made with Israel was a, a promise of mercy. Blessings also extended to those 
uh, of the other nations, including the other nations of the world, if they believe like Abraham did. They believe in the Messiah, in Christ by faith. So God made these promises to Abraham a long time before David came on the scene. Back when there was no nation, no Jews. So this one man, Abram, or Abraham, from his loins would come many people. Scripture says they're going to be numbered like the sands of the sea, like the stars of heaven. That's how many of his descendants would be. And from Abraham comes the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed by God to Israel. And God desires to treat men in mercy. Again, he's provided or proved that over and over and over again throughout the history of mankind. And again, through this man Abraham, again comes the nation Israel, through whom God channels his worldwide revelation and blessing from the seed that will come from him, that being the Messiah. And in this covenant that God makes with Abraham, he's going to promise to give him a defined land. He's going to promise deliverance from his enemies, which is protection, right? He's going to promise him blessing to the nation of Israel that would come from this relationship and then blessing to all the nations through the nation of Israel. So again, the covenant of Abraham is primarily a covenant about mercy, righteousness, holiness, and the seed that's going to come, and the seed is going to come from Abraham's the Redeemer for the salvation of God's people. So God sovereignly calls Abram, again when he's living out in Ur of the Chaldees, and he commands him to leave his country, leave his relatives, and go to the land that God would show him, Genesis 12.1. I'll just read it for you. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father, from your father's house. Here it is, to the land which I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So basically, land, seed, and a blessing. And God ratifies, that's in Genesis 12, and God ratifies the covenant again in Genesis 15, again in Genesis chapter 17. It's the most significant Old Testament covenant. It's reiterated eight times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 22, 26, 28, 35. The covenant that God made with Abraham is a covenant that was ratified by blood which shows how serious of a pledge was being undertaken. In a covenant like this, the animal would be taken, its life would be uh, taken from it, they'd cut it down in half, and two people who made the covenant would take these two halves and lay them <clears throat> side by side, <clears throat> they'd walk through the, the pieces of the animals cut in half, signifying how serious the covenant is, If saying basically, in essence, if one of us fails on the to keep the covenant may be done to us what has been done to these animals. That's how serious they took that covenant. But what's interesting, in Genesis chapter 15, God put Ab- puts Abram, uh, Abraham to sleep. Gives him a little bit of divine anesthesia, if you will. And God himself comes alone, like a smoking of a burning lamp, and he alone passes through the pieces by himself. So the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. God's sight only. What's God doing? It's unconditional. It's irrevocable. It's, again, God pledging himself to himself. It's not dependent on Abraham or his descendants whatsoever. Abraham is asleep. This is what God's doing. So God is really making a covenant with himself, and he's ratifying by blood, just like when the New Testament is ratified, it's 
ratified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it too being an everlasting covenant. So again, the Abrahamic covenant has not yet been fulfilled fully. It will be one day. Because God has promised land, seed, and blessing to the world through this people. And the covenant won't be fulfilled until the Messiah comes and he comes for a second time. Because it can't be fulfilled in total until the nation is delivered from their enemies. Again, look at the text. To show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all before him all our days. So again, part of the Abrahamic covenant includes a time of prosperity and peace, a lack of assault, a no fear of attack, holiness, righteousness, when the nation of Israel will be a blessing to all the other nations in a land that God has promised to give them. And in that day, they'll be delivered. In that day, they'll be able to serve the Lord without fear. In that day, the Lord will rule rule the whole world. And again, when the Lord rules, it's going to be a day of holiness, a day of righteousness. But it's not been fulfilled yet. Even in our day, it's not been fulfilled yet, but it has to be. Why does it have to be, why does it have to be fulfilled? Because God said he was going to fulfill it. God made a promise to do so. Again, at the time of the New Testament, the Abrahamic covenant was not yet fulfilled. Again, the land that God had given them was occupied by the Romans. And they were only living in a very small portion of the land that was originally promised and given to Abraham, just like they are today, just in a very small portion of the land. In that day, in the New Testament, in the day in which we live, conflict on all sides. They don't know peace. The nation of Israel has never experienced peace. Being delivered, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. One day they will. One day the nation of Israel will know peace. One day the nation of Israel has to know peace. Because God's made promises to Abraham. God's made promises to David. Again, unilateral, meaning God alone is the one who's made the promises by his own name, by his own character. He's going to fulfill them. Everlasting, unconditional promises, covenant promises that must be and will be fulfilled at some point. Because, again, God's word demands it. Zechariah knows all that. Zechariah knows that the promises to David and Abraham are dependent on the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, the coming of the Messiah is on the horizon because Zechariah is literally holding the forerunner in his arms, his son. So redemption is on the way. I'm holding the forerunner, and in Mary's womb is the Messiah. So the Jewish people always lived in anticipation of fulfillment of these covenants. They always waited for them to come to pass. So now here in this critical moment of redemptive history, uh, they are seemingly about to be all, all about all, to, uh, they're seemingly all about to be fulfilled. But there's a problem, there's a barrier, and the problem's disobedience. Well, God chooses to work through the nation of Israel, again, that, that people that came from the line of Abraham, the nation always struggled with disobedience. The nation always failed to respond by faith uh, in the revealed will of God. They, they lived their lives full of idolatry and empty ritualistic uh, outward worship, all the way up to the point where they actually rejected their king, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And, of course, that has led over the history of their existence to their chastening instead of their blessing. But, again, their rebellion is never going to negate the promises of God. And while God has punished them, listen, while God has punished the nation of Israel, the fact that they still exist is entirely significant because God has protected them. You know this as well as I do. Different men throughout history, we tried to raise up and eradicate the people, the nation of Israel, tried to eradicate their religion, tried to eradicate their culture, but Israel still exists. Israel occupies part of the land that God promised Abraham. And in the future, during the time of the tribulation, God's going to again rescue the nation of Israel from this, from the Antichrist and from all attempts uh, to annihilate them as a people. But in the end, there's going to be a believing remnant at the time of the tribulation. Now again, people, the nation of Israel as a people have never possessed the land that God has promised them. <clears throat> and they never will because they <clears throat> haven't known peace. And they will never know peace until the Prince of Peace himself comes and takes the throne sits on the seat of David and establishes his earthly kingdom. Again, God has promised that he'll never reject his people for their disobedience, right? He'll never forsake them. God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be, it says in Romans 11.1. Psalm 89.31, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness in from him, nor deal falsely with my faithfulness, my covenant I will not violate, nor alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And then there's my favorite word that we never read when we read the Psalms. After that, it says Selah. You know what Selah means? means, what do you think of that? And that's just my loose paraphrase of it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it means. What do you think of that? Right? This is what God's going to do. This is the promise that he's made. So you have the, <clears throat> the Davidic covenant. You have the Abrahamic covenant. I told you the third covenant in this story. It's just tremendous. It's not mentioned by name, but the, the, the component parts are there. It's the new covenant. It's what is known as the new covenant. So again, Zacharias briefly addresses his son, verse 76. He's going to be, his son is going to be the one who God's going to use to, God's going to send and call the nation back to God. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. Now, as, the, as he comes to verse 77, Zechariah begins to introduce the new covenant and the nature of the new covenant. <clears throat> verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. Again, there's nothing regarding forgiveness of sins either in the Davidic or the Abrahamic covenant. But there is in the New Covenant. The New Covenant allows God to display his character and his nature again. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our Lord with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. So forgiveness of sins... Uh, tender mercy, the sunrise from on high visiting us, uh, who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to peace. That's new covenant language. And, and it's not just that Israel has this barrier, barrier to blessing called sin, it's all of us have this barrier to blessing called sin. And, and this barrier is insurmountable by any human effort. 
Man, mankind's, I'll give you a newsflash, mankind's greatest problem is not political. It's not physical. It's not social. It's not psychological. Man's greatest problem is we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And the fact that all men die, physical deaths, is proof positive that we're infected, we're all infected with this thing called sin. Sin is an operative reality in a world that we live in. A pervasive presence, a power, and authority that influences and manipulates and controls our behavior that drives us from the inside out. That's sin. All of us have it. All of us have this evil that has defiled our hearts. Jeremiah says, 17, uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul, in Romans 3, he gives a comprehensive description. He draws from various Old Testament passages of Scripture of mankind's endemic, systematic sinfulness. In Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together to become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. So that's sin. Indwelling sin manipulates and controls all of our behavior. And no amount of willpower, no amount of willpower, no amount of determination or attempting to obey God is ever going to overcome sin's indwelling power. No, no amount of self-effort is going to allow us to stand right before God. That's why Paul goes on in Romans 3, verse 20. says, By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We can never stand righteous. We can never stand justified by before God by trying to keep the law, by attempting to keep the law, trying to obey external rules. Because what the law demonstrates to us, it, it demonstrates our inability. That's what the law does. The, the law demonstrates our inability to obey. The law demonstrates our desperate need for mercy, our desperate need for grace, our desperate need for forgiveness of sins. Because the truth is, it's the law that exacerbates our sin, which leads to our death. You say, what what do you mean by that? The law exacerbates our sin. Sin is so deep within us, we see a sign that says, don't touch wet paint. You laugh because you know, right? We see a line that says, don't cross the line. We see a sign that says, don't step on the grass. First thing we do is touch it, right? Next thing we do is get as close to the line as possible. Who are you to tell me not to step on the grass? I paid for this park, right? There's something inside us when we see the law that causes us to rebellion. That's sin. That's indwelling sin. Now in the Old Testament, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, in order that we might live. So, who in the room can say that they have perfectly loved God with the entirety of their life, the entirety of their soul, the entirety of their heart at all times in every moment of your life? Don't raise your hands. That's why I'm not looking up, because I don't want to see somebody raise their hand. Right? But if you've not done that, then you're a lawbreaker. If you do say that I've done that, then you are what? A liar. Yeah. You're a liar because nobody can keep the law. First of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So again, who in the room can say that they have perfectly kept God's preeminent uh, law at all moments of their life, at every second of their being? 
Who in the room can say that for not one moment they've ever set aside their ultimate affections on anything or anyone more than the Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father himself, even just for a nanosecond? And again, the answer is no one. Therefore, we all stand condemned as lawbreakers. We all stand condemned as sinners. Death, the wage that we have earned because of our sin. And because God is holy, he has to be treated that way as holy. So the truth of the matter is when you come to the law, uh, the Ten Commandments, again, were never given really in order for a person to keep them and they could justify themselves, but rather they were just given to display our sinfulness, our helplessness. You break one, law number one, there's no need to go down to the next nine because you're already guilty of lawbreaker. The book of Galatians you guys are going through in Sunday school, I'm not sure what chapter you're in, but it says the law was given to become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. God's law is the holy standard, and the law points to the fact that our, we're failures. We can't keep it before the law of God, before God's perfection, we're all guilty. Now, of course, the law was given in the Mosaic Covenant. I alluded to it last time. We can't go into it just because of time. But you're basically aware of the, new, of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, in summary, God promised blessings for obedience. He promised the nation if they obeyed God's law, given on Mount Sinai, there'd be blessing. But if they disobeyed, disobeyed then there'd be punishment. But again, no power, willpower, no self-determination can obey the entire law because the sinner can't do that and israel and in their own experience with god <clears throat> illustrates that truth again the people had the best interests and best intentions i think they really valued god they valued his law they wanted to you know they wanted to even seal their commitment to god with blood it says in exodus 24 verse 4 moses wrote down all the words of the law and then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of israel i sent a young men to the sons of israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read from it in the hearing of the people, and they all said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. Now again, I think they probably said that with the best intentions in mind. But because of their sinful natures, because of sin within them. By the, it's uh, chapter 24, by chapter 32, they've got the sin is such a control over them and, their, uh, and, and idolatry has taken over that their immorality leads to that uh, golden calf incidence, right? 3,000 men died that day in Israel under judgment. And again, you see that same thing, that same pattern <clears throat> repeated over and over again in the history of Israel. Over and over again, the nation of Israel is called by God to obey him. Over and over again, they're being given blessings if they would uh, come. Uh, blessings would come to them if they were obedient. And then he warns them of disobedience. But over and over again, in spite of the fact that people answered far beyond from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods, that's exactly what they did. Because good intentions can never keep the nation of Israel nor other men from slipping into apostasy. The nation is in a hopeless condition. There's no way possible for them to receive the promised blessings of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant because they kept violating God's law all the time, the Mosaic covenant. And again, there's no provision in the Mosaic covenant to deal with the issue of their sin. So the people are desperate. <clears throat> they need help. They're desperately in need of forgiveness, desperately in need of the power to obey. And again, that's where the new covenant comes in. 
The new covenant's the personal work of God to forgive sin, the personal work of God to cleanse the heart, the personal work of God to provide spiritual power. Now, the new covenant is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 31 and other places, again, obviously centuries before the birth of Christ. <clears throat> but what I want you to do is put a mark there in Luke, <clears throat> excuse me, and I want you to turn over to the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews chapter 8 really is an exposition of Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8 verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, now the writer of the book of Hebrews is not talking about, he's talking about the Old Testament, Old Covenant, but he's not talking about errors or problems in the Old Covenant. He's saying, look, there's nothing in the Old Covenant that could produce a perfect internal obedience. Uh, the Old Covenant lacked transformational power. Sometimes people got obeyed, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they wanted to do God's will, other times they would not. Look at David. A man after God's own heart, right? No doubt he loved the Lord. No no doubt he poured out his heart towards the Lord. But then he turns right around and commits adultery and murder. So the writer here of the book of Hebrews is saying... There's no provision, no power, no divine ability to obey or control the heart or the passions of the heart under the Old Covenant. It lacked internal motivation. It was all external. But the problem, again, is not with the law. It's with man's inability to keep the law. So the Old Covenant wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. There's a need for a new covenant. And again, the writer here in Hebrews 8 is going to quote out of Jeremiah 31 verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, I mean them being the people, not the law of God, but the people's inability to live up to the promises that they said they would keep. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect or I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, new here, the word new here is not chronos like in time, like on your watch, but it's kanos. It means new with respect to substance, new kind, unprecedented, novel, unheard of. I will effect or I will establish a new covenant. I'm going to do something unprecedented. I'm going to do uh, something that, again, God ordained, God decreed, God authored, something new. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day which I took them by hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Again, that's the Mosaic covenant. God called Moses up to the mountain to give him the law. And again, God said, in essence, do this and you'll live. Don't do this and then you'll die. Blessings for obedience, promises of cursing for disobedience. For they did not continue... In my covenant, the writer says. <clears throat> Again, the people, by their disobedience, they forfeited the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. They, they were going to be punished. They tried to obey, but they couldn't. They had no power. No power for obedience. Again, one day they were walking with God, the next day they weren't. Their heart wasn't true. Their disobedience was always coming out and bringing cursing and judgment. The writer says, And I did not care for them, says the Lord. Verse 10 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And with those, in, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a dramatic transformational change. That's a change in relationship. That's a miraculous change in nature. That's a change of the inner man. God's going to give man a new inner disposition. Jeremiah 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will return to me with their whole heart. Now put a mark right there, and then turn back. I do want you to see this in uh, uh, Ezekiel, or you can just listen. You're your choice. But Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 25. And this passage in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, is speaking about this very thing. It's speaking about the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God says, look, I'm going to do a heart surgery. I'm going to do some heart work. I'm going to take that hard heart, that stony heart, that God-resistant heart that can be drawn away into disobedience and drawn away easily into idols, and I'm going to remove it. And I'm going to cleanse you from all of your filthiness. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a soft heart. A heart that desires and has the power to obey God out of love, out of thankfulness. Because there's been a complete transformation in the inner man. Verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You know what that is? It's regeneration. Right? That's regeneration. That's exactly what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born from above. This is man being made new in Christ. This is a new creation where all things have passed away, all things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Verse 28. And you will live in the land. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, and so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Complete transformational change because that's what the new covenant promises new man new heart new man with the old rebellious man gone ezekiel 36 25 and following right that's the the promise of the new covenant now go back to hebrews 8 we'll pick it up from there Hebrews 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach everybody his fellow citizens and every one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greater. Everyone's going to know God because the Holy Spirit's going to dwell within the believer. Again, a wonderful promise that nobody in the Old Testament ever knew the permanent indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, God in us. And again, that happens in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, the sending of uh, the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts. Verse 12. 
for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So again, the new covenant provides man that he, that thing that he's desperately in need of. That's forgiveness of sin. Again, something the old covenant could never do. Now the new covenant was made first with the nation of Israel. And when God first made the covenant with the nation of Israel, there were still land promises connected with the new covenant. Again, Ezekiel thirty twenty eight. You don't have to there. You don't have to turn there. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. There are spiritual promises of blessing, spiritual promises of forgiveness. There's promises of internal transformation that extend that are for the nation of Israel. But also, by extension, everyone who believes by faith. Someone wrote this down. I'm not sure who it was. I can't remember. It says the church presently participates in the new covenant while national, national Israel fulfill a new covenant in the future. Because there's still things that need to be fulfilled in the new covenant related to the land. So again, the new covenant is not based on our keeping rules. It's not external. It's all internal. It's what God does. It's what God does with the heart and the mind of those who belong to him. And because the heart and the mind has been changed, it results in true worship, new heart, true worship, new heart, personal. God's law is not external, but God's law is within us. And his spirit permanently dwelling within us. So that's just tremendous good news, right? Tremendously good news found in the, in the new covenant. Because again, what the new covenant provided was the essential thing that all the other covenants lacked. A new heart, a new nature, internal transformational change. The power to obey God, the power to have fellowship with God, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin. Those are the keys that unlock the promises of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. These cancel cancel out the condemnation of the Mosaic law because the new covenant again provides positional change before God because of the forgiveness of sin. Deliverance from sin's power, deliverance from sin's penalty, and one day, ultimately, deliverance from sin's very presence. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. You guys okay? Well, let's go back to Luke 1 and I'll finish it. I'll tie it all together. It's okay if you understand me by Thursday. Remember I said there's three covenants in this anthem of praise. And the third covenant in the story is the new covenant. And again, Zacharias, as cloudy as it might be out there, Zacharias saw all of this. He understood it. He understood that the covenants and their fulfillment would come when the Messiah arrived. Therefore, his response to the announcement of the Messiah's forerunner was to break into a song of praise because he knew the inevitable fulfillment of the Messianic covenants. So again, he's already referred to the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant. So now he's going to magnify in his hymn of praise the new covenant. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. How do you do that? John's mission was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah's arrival. arrival. You know what he did? He had one sermon. 
Luke 3 and 3. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Matthew 3, verse 2, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This guy even questioned the legitimacy of some of his peers about their apparent or alleged repentance. Some of the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to hear him there in the wilderness. It says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think I talked about this this morning, didn't I, right? Repentance is not a very popular message then, not a very popular message now. People were looking for a conquering hero who would defeat their enemies, establish a kingdom, bring the fulfillment of all the blessings of the Davidic covenants. But John says, look, before that can happen, every man needs to face the reality of his sin. Every man needs to repent, seek forgiveness that is provided only in the new covenant. That one day is going to soon be ratified by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in his one-time sacrificial substitutionary death, providing for redemption for all throughout history who would repent and believe in the salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Again, John's message was, before it's too late, everybody needs to repent. Everybody needs to turn away from their sin. Everybody needs to seek forgiveness, because religion is not going to save you. Going to church isn't going to save you. Growing up in a so-called Christian nation is not going to save you. The message is repent now because the Lord is coming. Repent. The Lord's coming. You better get ready now. He's going to come. He's going to come deal with sin. Verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So if you're going to receive forgiveness of sin, first you have to admit the fact that you're a sinner in need of uh, forgiveness. And the Bible teaches that God's holy. He demands perfection. The Bible take, teaches it only takes one sin to make a person a sinner. One, one sin to make a person guilty of eternal punishment. And again, the Bible teaches that all men are born sinners. Sinners by birth. Sinners by action. Sinners by divine declaration. And again, men don't like that message. Most men reject that message. We know this from our study in John. Men love their sin. John 3, 19. This is the judgment lies coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. The light that's coming to the world is Jesus Christ. And simply stated, John is saying, look, men love their sin. They don't want to give it up. They, they, they want to hold on to their sin. They want to re- they're going to reject the light. Now, again, men like to rationalize. I'm not as bad as that guy sitting over there on the other side of the room. But other men aren't the standard. The standard is God. God's holy. He demands perfection. And God says no one's perfect. Not one. The Bible says there's none righteous. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, all fall short of God's absolute demand of perfection. But again, the Bible also teaches that God offers repentance and forgiveness of sin for the, or offers forgiveness of sin for those who would repent. And again, that's the message that John's going to go out and preach. It's a hard message. Nevertheless, it's the message that his father, Zacharias, knows that this son he's holding in his arms has been born to proclaim. This message. 
You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare, you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Verse seventy-seven to give His people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. Again, John is the John the prophet, or John the Baptist is the prophet. He's the prophet of the Most High. He's not going to go declare his own message. He's going to declare the message that God has given him to declare that prepares the way for the Messiah to come. Again, if, mess, if, if salvation is going to come, it's only going to come by God's way, not man's way. Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. Jesus, Matthew 7, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Many are those who enter by in it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and fear are those who find it. If salvation comes to man, it's only coming in God's way. It's only going to come through repentance from sin. And again, Zechariah says to his son, you'll go before the Lord. You'll prepare his ways to give people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin. Salvation is possible. Forgiveness of sin is available. Not because men deserve it. Not because men have worked for it. But it only comes by God's grace. It only comes by the God who justifies the guilty as a gift. Salvation or escape from God's coming judgment occurs only when sinners see their sin before a holy God, only when sinners recognize they have violated God's holiness, that they are indeed under his condemnation, and only if they would turn, only if they would humble themselves, turn away from their sin, cry out to mercy. God promises that their sins will be forgiven. And that's exactly what Zechariah understood. And that's exactly what he proclaims, he declares here. But why would God save? Why would God grant forgiveness of sin? What exactly is it that makes salvation possible? What is it that makes God do this? What motivates him to provide salvation? Verse 78, here it is. This this phrase right here is why you had to sit through two hours of this, because I love this verse. I'm serious. Because of the tender mercy of our God. That's it. Salvation comes to men, not because of our work, not because of our effort. Salvation comes to men. Salvation is possible because of the tender mercy of our God. Tender mercy. It's a kind of funny little word. It's blank non in the Greek. Literally talks about something referring to the bowels. It's talking about the guts. It's talking about the inward parts. It's talking about deep inward emotions. Splanchnon, and then Elios, mercy, kindness, goodwill. But the reason that God offers salvation to men, which is something he doesn't have to do, the reason that God offers forgiveness of sin is that there's something deep down inside him in his inward parts, in his deep-seated nature that desires to show mercy to men. That's what you should come away from with this passage. He desires to show mercy to men, this deep-seated inward desire to show favor to sinners who are in rebellion against him. God has an innate, internal, intense desire to be compassionate to men. And again, all through the Bible, there are repeated references to God's compassion, his concern for sinners, his mercy. As a glorious attribute celebrated all through Scripture. God's always described as merciful and gracious. Full of compassion. Uh, Ephesians 2. God who is rich in mercy. At Titus 3.5. God saves us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his 
Mercy. God wants to display mercy to men. God wants to relieve our misery. God wants to relieve the misery in our life that sin has got us into. He wants to exhibit his love and kindness and forgiveness towards us. It's probably contrary to what most men on the street would imagine about God. But the truth biblically is God is a compassionate God, a merciful God. And he extends kindness not just to his friends, but extends kindness to his enemies. The Bible says for those who believe, Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God desires to show mercy to the greatest of sinners. His mercy, his covenant mercy, his abundant mercy, his everlasting mercy, his rich mercy, his full mercy, his tender mercy. If God would have dealt with us as we deserve, if God would have dealt with us justly, if God would have left us in our sin and give us the penalty that we deserve, that would be eternal punishment. That's what we've all earned. But listen, the Bible teaches that God is for sinners. God is for sinners. God has a deep, compassionate love for the lost, for those who will repent for those who will turn away from their sin, for those who will put their faith in Christ, they'll receive of God's tender mercy. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God. It's only those who reject God's mercy. It's only those who reject God's merciful offer of forgiveness who are going to taste the full wrath of his, the full fury of his wrath. Because God desires that men will come to a knowledge of the truth and be safe. Now, Zacharias got this baby in his arms. And all this has gone through his head. And he's anticipating the coming of the one whose death is going to secure the blessing of the new covenant. That would be the Messiah. So he uses rich Old Testament metaphors in Messianic theology and Messianic symbolism. Verse 78 again, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. The sunrise from on high, or the day spring from on high. Sunrise, the, the word means the, the first light of the dawn. On high, it speaks about heaven, symbolically of heaven. To Zechariah, saying, look, the great light from heaven is coming. He, he's going to visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Back in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, it says, to, Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. 2 Peter 1.19 speaks of the day when the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart. Uh, Revelation 22, Christ calls himself the bright and morning star. Someone said this of Zechariah's speech here. He says, the sunrise from on high will visit us, shining into the deep darkness of sin and ending the soul's long night. That's who's coming. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine 
upon those who sit in darkness. Again, darkness uh, used metaphorically in the Bible speaks of sinfulness. Sometimes it describes ignorance, sometimes error, sometimes our moral condition, wickedness, and iniquity. Sometimes it's uh, used to speak to the presence of Satan. Sometimes darkness is just symbolizes sin. Therefore, it also symbolizes a place of eternal judgment, a place called hell, a place of outer darkness. The Bible says God's light, there's no darkness in him whatsoever. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came as a light to the world, John 1, verse 9. The prophet Isaiah says of the Messiah, Isaiah 42, verse 6, he is a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring the prisoners from the dungeons and those who dwell in darkness from prison. And that's the condition of the fallen world. That's the world of rebellious men groping in the darkness. They desperately need light. Because there's no human solution to the dilemma of sin. If men are going to be saved, then God has to act. God has to intercede. Therefore, because of God's kindness, because of his compassion, because of his tender mercy, he's promised to send salvation. Mankind's only solution to the dilemma of his sin is going to send the Redeemer. The sunrise from on high who shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness. That's a fulfillment when Messiah comes of what the Old Testament prophets said about the Messiah, right? Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. That's the coming of the Christ. Sets the prisoners free. That's the, the, the Redeemer who comes from Zion to turn transgression away in Jacob. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Speaking of uh, uh, the coming kingdom, your light shall come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, the darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness your people, but the Lord will rise upon you and the glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light and kings to their brightness and to your raising. The prophet goes on there in that chapter, verse 19 of that chapter, speaks of eternity and, and, and the new Jerusalem. It says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor... For brightness will you have the moon to give you light, but you'll have the Lord, an everlasting light. And your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane. For you'll have the Lord as an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. You'll possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Tremendous, right? Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise from on high is going to visit us. And those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, I mean, that's all of us, right? We all sit in the shadow of death. No one knows the days of our departure. It's coming because the wages of sin is death, and we're all involved in that. So we're all desperate for this one who can bring light, this one who has been sent into this world by the tender mercy of our God. A sunrise from on high. That's why when the Lord <coughs> went in to the uh, <coughs> synagogue in his uh, public ministry there in the book of Luke, chapter 4, he picked up the scripture, Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news and to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The light just came. 
That's why he can say, as we've been looking in the book of John, peace I give to you. How can he give us peace? Because he's the Prince of Peace. Why is he here? Because of the tender mercy of our God. So that's the person we celebrate at Christmas. The promised one. The child born, the son given. God come in the flesh. Set in this world on a mission of mercy. That's who we celebrate at Christmas. And Zacharias saw it. Again, little pits and pieces weren't fulfilled yet. They will be because God keeps his word. But he was so overjoyed because he knows that God keeps his word. And he could see it. He's holding the first installment, if you want, in time of the eternal plan, the coming of the forerunner, his son. And he knows that the Messiah is coming, is going to defeat sin and death, give God's people hope, everlasting redemption for those who repent and believe upon him. The one who is full of tender mercy. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful just to get a quick glimpse here, and I know it's been long, but it really is a quick glimpse of everything that Zechariah saw and what he understood and the great promises and blessings of you, our God, and again, all that you say is true. And we just rejoice in that. We're so thankful to be a part of that. So thankful to uh, share in the promises of the new covenant. So thankful that you are God, that you keep your word down to the minutest detail. So as we began the day honoring you, worshiping you, praising you, adoring you, we end the day doing the same thing, thanking you for being our God, for your mercy, for grace that you send to this world through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, We love you, and we want to honor you with our life. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.